just get back to some very like guttural roots. It's kind of like a primal need. We let media control so much of how these people form their opinions. It's going to be like first year college when all of these trade shows open back up. This is like family that doesn't get to have a reunion. They wanted people to know that their focus was on making sure that the grizzly bears weren't endangered. They literally got rid of them without any scientific backing. Yes, it is an awesome power to be able to harvest an animal. It is a responsibility, but it is also a responsibility to make sure that you're doing it ethically and you're helping, you know, preserve the population so that down the road, the next generations can. This is Rachel Attila, and you are listening to the Wild Initiative podcast. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. You and I and everybody listening to this owns 640 million acres. I think he killed more deer drinking his coffee, smoking a cigarette in the pickup truck than I did spending all that time freezing my butt off. Something that I would hope is that people realize that those are wild animals and they have savage natures. I look forward to packing animals out. I look forward to that pain of success. Doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter where you live. I've said it before and you know what? I'll say it again louder for the people in the back. Your present circumstance should not limit your passions. This is Jay Scott of the Jay Scott Outdoors podcast. Hey, this is Ryan Callahan. Hi, this is Jules McQueen. Hey everybody, Jason Carter here with Epic Outdoors. Hey guys, this is Tim Burnett with Solo Hunter. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, y'all. So getting on with today's episode, today I'm speaking with Rachel Attila. Rachel is from British Columbia. She's a hunting guide, a writer, a conservationist. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on with me today. Sam, it's my pleasure. I know it's been a long time coming and blessed 2020 and all the things that have come up. I'm glad we're able to tee this up. Absolutely. And, you know, I think we actually 
may have started even further back in the day, back when I was still living country in the city. Oh, yeah. I think we talked for a bit and then uh, <laughs> and now now getting back to it. But uh, yeah, I'm glad glad we were able to finally make this happen. Um, one thing I always like to start with is I would just love if you could give a bit of an introduction about yourself, uh, kind of who you are, what you do, and really... How did you get introduced to the outdoors? Uh, it's really quite simple. I had a really bad horse affliction when I was a child. And <laughs> bless my parents' heart, they uh, they foresaw the expenses coming, I'm sure. And when I was 10 turning 11, I had the opportunity to go to my godparents' hunting camp up in northern British Columbia, which wasn't just an hour or two trip. It takes about 24 hours in a vehicle to get to Watson Lake, which is the very most Southern town on the U um, Yukon border. And then from there, fly about half an hour to 45 minutes, depending on the plane you used into the remote wilderness. So needless to say, I was kind of hooked with the romanticism of that epic adventure from a very small age, um, small child, sorry. And uh, ever since then, it kind of transpired from, you know, kicking around the corrals and learning how to break horses to getting to tag along on the pack trips. And then eventually when I was, uh, I think I was like 14 or 15, I got to actually not only do trail out, but tag along on the first stone sheep kind of the season. And from there, that was, I think that introduced my world beyond just what British Columbia had to hold. And as one thing always leads to another, the next thing, you know, I found myself at the trade shows and meeting friends from almost every single continent around the world and building up this community and, and sense of um, almost family, you could say, with people that were like-minded and, and all loved and were passionate about what we did and, and preserving it. And next thing you know, that's taken me from being a wrangler to a hunting guide to burning pancakes as a camp cook and <laughs> podcasts and uh, yeah, writing for different companies and, here I am today. There you go. Um, so would you say, would you say that the, the kind of backcountry horseback trips are really what your passion is? They are. Um, I think there's something very romantic about it. You know, when you look at the way that we settled the West and even parts of the known world, most of the great conquerors were on horseback. <laughs> and so in kind of a, you know, a way of looking at it that way, still fundamentally taking yourself back from all the bells and whistles and technology that you have available to you to go out hunting today and living out of a pack string. You know, there's an array of things that can go right. There's an array of things that can go wrong. Um, but at the same time, no two experiences are exactly the same. So with horses being one of the first loves that I, I couldn't imagine life without and getting to incorporate hunting and then giving people that experience, I think that really, you know, transfers over to the whole, the whole desire to just release yourself from today, from COVID, you know, <laughs> as it was, um, you know, and just get back to some very like guttural roots that I think we all as humans, it's kind of like a primal need. So it's, no, it's a passion for sure. I, d I definitely think, you know, and again, you know, you're talking to someone that that that's that's really what got me hooked on hunting as well was kind of the the romantic view, the mountain hunts, the you know, for me it's it's uh chasing elk in the mountains with my bow and 
but it's that same kind of idea that that very primal um, back to our our roots as humans kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, you're definitely talking to someone that understands that getting hooked on that that really romantic picture in the back country. It's not always glamorous, though. And oh. I think that's the thing that, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's the thing that's very humbling is that you can look at a beautiful editorial from Field and Stream or Peterson's Hunting Magazines or, you know, Eastman's. And what I think everyone's trying to do, which is a really cool movement, is show the the downright dirty side of it. I mean, it's early morning. Sometimes the horses take off. Sometimes, you know, gear, you know, fails usually, you know, hopefully rather not. But (laughs) I think there's like that side of it too. And like the element of danger, we live in a safe world where, you know, there's so many things that you, you take as precautionary measures these days. And when you kind of throw yourself to the wilderness, I mean, there is that element of danger that people like to have. that kind of makes you feel alive. It, it's really, it does remind you just what living is like, because again, like you said, everything, it, everything in this world is so safe. You know, we got, it, it, it's like our entire world has bubble wrap around it. You know, we have the government trying to tell us, you know, what size sodas we need to drink so we don't have to think <laughs> for ourselves and, um, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And yeah, having those moments where, it's very literally up to you and you alone to keep yourself alive. It's, it really reminds you that, that you're a human, that you do have uh, this life inside of you and you, and also that you're capable. Yes. Like people don't know how capable they are in the world these days. It's amazing. Well, don't know or don't have the opportunity or playing out. Don't want to be. It's very cushy. Like, I'm not going to lie. There are times when we're trailing out of the mountain and, you know, you look forward to a flushing toilet. (laughs) You know, there's times where you, I know I have a phobia of mice and I'm not going to lie. I love going out and camping and I love going out on the hunting trips and guiding. I do love my bed and I love knowing that there's not going to be a mouse run across my face from an old cabin so like i mean there's like that fine balance of like heroism but also creature comforts that i think that's one thing about hunting that is so alluring for people is that you can dabble in it still but you have these creature comforts you can come back to so i think that's like speaking to it i think that's one thing that people really still need in their life is to remind themselves oh yeah if we're going to proverbial hell in a handbasket you know, I'll still be able to go and put meat on the on the table. And a lot of people, that's all they solely rely on. I mean, I've got moose, bison, caribou, and whatever other critter in the freezer, and I would way rather have that or, you know, buy from a local farmer to get um, a beef in the freezer. But it's that connection to your food and your surroundings, I think, that more and more we're becoming an educated society as things have kind of had plot twists thrown at us that, like this year alone, I don't know about you, but I found that people are going back, especially with COVID. The real estate market is crazy. People mm-hmm. are moving out of the bigger cities, going to the country. And hunting sales for um, just you know over-the-counter hunting tags this year were through the roof. So to me, that's a win for us as an industry um, and for something that usually has so much slander and um, you know anti 
propaganda against it, where all of a sudden, as soon as creature comforts were taken away, when we came out of the mountains this year and we went into the civilization, it's like, no, people are understanding that if some food doesn't come to Superstore or Walmart, next thing you know, they got to go find it somewhere else. It's I'm very interested to see. Actually, I'd, I'd be very interested to see as well kind of success rates because, you know, everyone has talked about it. There has definitely been a renewed like a, a resurgence of this interest in in hunting and fishing. And and I'm curious how many of these people that went out uh, and, and bought these licenses or or bought tags. Very curious how many actually took the time to learn what they were doing and, and, and to be, be successful. And I'm curious how many will be going back again next year, or maybe how I'm, you know, just a, a lot of curiosity about you. I mean, how many actually went out, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that were like, you know, I should have a hunting license and mm-hmm. then never actually left their, you know, city apartment. Um, but I'm just curious how that's going to translate into the long term, all of this, whether the, whether it's just one of those momentary kind of uh, panicked, this is something I should know, and then they never see it through. Makes me wonder what what we're going to see over the next few years. For sure. And I think that's one thing that, you know, you're always going to have those people that jump on the next bandwagon, right? Because it's new, it's trendy, or it's survival and trendy, or pandemic and trendy. But I feel like at this stage, one of the things that people fundamentally realizes that if food isn't going to get produced, they have to make it themselves. I don't know um, how it is across many parts of the United States, but in Canada, you have to go through a gun certification course to be able to carry a firearm, then be licensed for it, and then be able to, you know, do your hunting, your core education program. And then once you've passed your core education and the gun handling aspect, (laughs) then all of a sudden you're allowed to go hunting. So for us in Canada, I think, the people that could go and get those certifications to be able to go hunt, you've had to do the due diligence. So I feel like those people, we might have a whole bunch of new hunters that are getting into it now because it's an excuse to go to nature. Um, one of the things that when in Canada, when COVID hit back in March is that, you know, they closed a bunch of the public areas down, but parks were kind of a taboo area or forest or community lands. So, people started to flock to them because they wanted something to do, whether it was as a family, as a single person with your friends where you could socialize and distance and, you know, all this other hoopla that we've been going through this year. So one of the things that I've seen, especially here in Canada is that people have gone back to more of a traditional family setting where they're actually doing things as a family, you know, whether that was making dinner because, you know, Lord help us. I know one thing that was off the shelf was toilet paper. The next thing was flour and baking ingredients. <laughs> so, you know, families, you know, not only were they, they were going back to learning how to be providers for their own household. You know, I'm hoping that maybe that extended into realizing not only about hunting, but, you know, the ranching community. Um, I had the privilege of riding with a really good company up in uh, Northern Canada um, for a big cow calf operation and i'll tell you what like whether you're a hunter or not like ranchers they work all year round and i think that was one thing that all of my ranching friends saw was all of a sudden the need to buy beef which was great and people were realizing that you know if they can't get steaks at costco they need to go the next best source 
So, you know, in the travesty that happened this year, I'm kind of hoping that there are some good things, whether it is from the hunting, from someone that wants to do subsistence hunting and realizing, you know, the sport of it, as well as, you know, the awesome power it comes with harvesting an animal, but also supporting, you know, something that's also settled America and Canada and much of the known world, which was the cultivation of uh, livestock. Mm -hmm. I think if nothing else as well, it's, it really will create create an understanding of what we do, even if, you know, somebody that may have gone on their first hunt this year or may have attempted to go on their first hunt, if you will. If nothing else, I think it will give them a perspective. Mm-hmm. So then they're no longer that person that's like, oh, you know, your Bambi killers, your, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And because, I mean, at least here in, in the States, I think it's less than four percent of of the population are are hunters and then they say about less uh, about the same amount on the other end are are vehemently anti-hunting and then it's it's that extra that huge majority chunk in the middle that that we kind of rely on here to help protect our hunting rights you know they may not hunt but they they understand that it's necessary or that it's beneficial whatever that may be um and so we rely on them. So it's important that people have those understandings for sure. And I'm sure it's somewhat similar up there. Oh, 100%. And I think it's having those dialogues that are welcoming kind of for both aspects that will ultimately be the greatest merger for, you know, one DM to another. And I think that's probably going to be one of the bigger conversations as we move forward. I know from my own family, my mom, bless her heart, you know, she could catch a fish and make a fish fillet before McDonald's was doing it. (laughs) But she's like, as far as killing an animal, that's not really something she wants to do. But the running joke was, well, if the pandemic really hits, I'm coming to your house because I know your freezer's full. (laughs) So, you know, there's those people that not necessarily want to partake in it themselves and they appreciate others that do. And I think it's opening that as kind of an accepted, you know, state of mind that benefits everyone. You don't have to be a part of it, but you don't necessarily have to poo-poo it, so to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely had a lot of friends uh, that have messaged me. And especially since since my move to Montana, a lot of my friends have messaged me and saying, if if it hits the fan, we're coming to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've heard that the, we watched your um, election and it sounds like there are a lot of folks that are fleeing kind of the coastal regions and coming inland to good old hearted America. So, Oh my gosh. They, they, and I'm definitely one of them. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I know some people listening to this are, are shaking their fist at me. Other people are like, yeah. Um, and it's funny. It's just, you know, it's, I feel like now a lot of the right, kind of people are moving but also the wrong kind of people are moving um you know i'll let i'll let people make their own decisions what would you say is the wrong kind of people oh the uh, as as i would put it the best way the best shirt i've seen or the best bumper stickers i've seen are the uh don't california my montana oh there you uh, go t-shirts and and this is this is just me bitching mostly but you know it's the whole idea of you vote or you you push policies or you behave in a certain way that creates an environment that you hate. 
And so you leave that place and then you find a, a place you enjoy and then do the same thing and, and, and bring it down. You see that a lot in Colorado where, uh, you know, where things are getting, getting real California E lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I don't know, I feel like the biggest hypocrite being a Californian, <laughs> but you know, to I say all this, but, um, we have similar talks about, you know, people in the lower mainland coming up to, you know, Eastern parts of and Northern parts of British Columbia, but at the same time, there's still people that, you know, understand, but the hardest part and kind of the most interesting part is that we let media control so much of how these people form their opinions. And, you know, I've got to travel a little bit. And when you end up sitting beside people on a plane and having a chit chat about where you're from and what you do, it's very interesting how people's opinions are formed when they're like, well, you know, we didn't know the grizzly bear was such a nuisance or, you know, there's examples that reign true where they might've voted, you know, against having or having the hunt put aside even for British Columbia, say surrounding the grizzly bears. And then we didn't realize that, you know, that they were a livelihood and that they're all almost, you know, they're harvested at, you know, respectable and administered um, harvest allocation based on scientific data and that the whole reason that they actually went away wasn't based on science or anything like that, but more of a political standpoint. And so to me, you know, as we kind of talk about, you know, the people that are moving in or influxing from urban centers, I feel like the urban centers is where we almost need to be putting more emphasis on educating people about what we do and kind of what we like to call like, the golden God's country. (laughs) So, Oh, absolutely. Um, and there's actually, you know, I do see that was a, that's always been a big passion of mine is reaching out to people that, that didn't grow up in, in country or or rural areas that, that didn't grow up, you know, walking through the woods with granddad's gun. And I really have always had a big passion for those type of people because I was one. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I see a lot of other people starting to move in that direction. And uh, I, I had on the podcast not too long ago, a guy, uh, his name's Orlando Chiles. Chiles and uh, he, uh, he goes by Buck the Black Hunter. Uh, um, fun, and he's just a wild dude. And he's from, he's from California. Uh, and he found hunting by he was watching rap videos on YouTube and somehow a Randy Newberg video popped up, uh, you know, of all people <laughs> in um, the middle of, you know, hip hop in RV. the middle of these like full on like uh, hip hop rap videos. And, uh, and he just fell in love with hunting and people like that are such an amazing voice for what we do because they're going to reach places that, you know, someone like maybe you or, uh, well, apparently Randy Newberg can reach there, but, uh, <laughs> like, I was just, I thought you were going down the track of Randy Newberg was like background dancing in some of these R and B. I was like, that is a brilliant marketing play. Way to go, Randy. I, I, I wonder if we could talk him into doing that. I'm going oh, to I mean, I'm gonna have to talk to Orlando and 
<laughs> I've seen I've seen him bebop around the Miss J Ranch booth, and I don't know if uh, Randy stayed married all these years because of his dance moves or just his good looks and wit. But uh, <laughs> let's not put him on a dance movie just quite yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, the day he listens to this episode, uh, <laughs> disclaimer, uh, Randy, you did a great job at the Mr. Ranch booth, and it was a cheap show, and there might have been alcohol involved. Uh, i think jason matzinger actually was the instigator but you know we won't go there on jason's move so oh man oh man i feel like there there needs to be a new new like matzinger newberg dance troupe that that's formed oh dance off i tell you what that's you you know what we were talking about like just on the track of dance off and stuff you know there's with COVID, everything's being shut down and play, you know, all the different hunting trade shows are trying to go virtual. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine what the trade shows are going to be like dance off the side, whether it's Randy Newberg, Jason Matzinger, or Remy Warren, fun fact, really good break dancer. He gave us all a break dance on the, um, oh, the Ferris wheel in Vegas and like dropped to the floor and showed like a whole group of us his rad move. So props to that guy, but <laughs> It's going to be like first year college when all of these trade shows open back up. Oh my gosh. I mean, this is like family that doesn't get to have a reunion. And, you know, I was just down in the States visiting a few friends and it's like, man, we're all depressed. Christmas is a high, you get to see your family, but Christmas is almost like that first climax in a pie chart or in a graph where all of a sudden, you know, you're getting to the good point and then all of a sudden Christmas happens and it's cool and everyone's high on goodies. And then the next thing, you know, trade show season happens. And it's like the pinnacle of your winter mm-hmm. because you just got to see your family. You just got to do the holidays. And now all of a sudden you get to see your trade show family to talk about hunting. So to me, it's, it's like the crocs, right? Yeah. And we don't have it this year. It, it It's, I'm really bummed. <laughs> I am just, I keep thinking about it. And I think the only one that still left that hasn't officially canceled is, is DSC. I think, I don't think there's anything else that's, that's still open and who knows, you know, who knows what the city's going to let them do. Yeah. And I mean, that's in February of next year and the hardest part, I mean, I'm all for it. I'll go, oh, I'll yeah. show my patronage, but you got to think about all the outfitters. Like even like Dallas Safari club, Safari <laughs> second word, mm-hmm. they're relying on 90% of their exhibitors to be able to come from other countries. Oh Yeah. That's the saddest part about it. All these other countries are going into lockdown again. And, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'm, I will show up first one of the door. I promise you if Dallas Fire Club goes ahead, even if it's just to walk around and see mm-hmm. what, you know, American Canadians that make it down. <laughs> um, but if they, if they don't start working on how the world is going to start moving forward, I don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah. I want it, it to. No, I mean, I, I'm kind of in the same spot. It'll, it'll be interesting. Like if that's, if that's the one that happens, there's going to be a lot of people that show up. I feel like. Oh, in Texas. uh, Come on now. (laughs) Come on now. They're hosting the NFR at Reno or, um, sorry, Vegas was like, nope, can't do it. And Texas was like, come on down. (laughs) (laughs) Bring your boots, cute and booties. Like, I mean, come on. Texas would be the only place that would have it. That's I, I couldn't imagine anywhere else would get away with it. Uh, but we will, it's, I'm definitely keeping my eye on it and it's, 
it's crazy but uh yeah so i think what moral of the story is for to raise funds for some some conservation organization whatever it happens to be we need to start a petition to have randy newberg jason matzinger and remy warren all have a dance off a live dance off um and all the proceeds need to go to conservation i think oh is what my it comes gosh down to. could you imagine i'd i'd pay a lot to see that i'm just just throwing that out there um it could be on an episode of fresh tracks <laughs> i to say fresh prince of bel-air i was like they could do a theme one too Ooh, how funny oh how funny <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh man so uh i'm going to i'll start the petition to make this happen i'll start passing it around we'll uh we'll all share it and <laughs> and maybe maybe that can happen come february uh <laughs> 2022 boys you got uh a year and a half to work on your dance moves get it square there we go there we there go. go so one thing completely changing topics from uh from three of the whitest guys i know dancing um <laughs> yeah to uh you know one thing you talked about earlier you're talking a lot about uh the grizzly bears in bc and one thing is, you know, I would love, you know, I'm I'm kind of familiar with the background of what happened, but I'd love if you could share with my my listeners kind of the genesis of that because you referenced it and and the grizzly bears going away um, in British Columbia. We used to be able to hunt grizzly bears. What what happened? So back in December um, in 2018, or sorry, 2017. Um, the BC government announced that there was going to be a complete ban on grizzly bears um, that was taken effect, like, effect immediately. Um, and that ended the grizzly bear hunt, which, you know, and th- there was no science. There was no, no warning, no nothing. It came with um, basically just eliminating, you know, the biggest threat that they said that was kind of, of our iconic species they you know, they said that there was, um, that we should, or I'm trying to figure out how they worded it. It was like, they wanted people to know that their focus was, um, on making sure that the grizzly bears weren't endangered. And they said, you know, obviously they're an important part of the landscape. You know, they've been extirpated across Montana, you know, Colorado, which Montana, I know they're there for a fact, but they literally, got rid of them without any scientific backing. There's organizations like the Guide Outfitters Association of BC that has actively been putting together um, different forms of information to the public, basically showing that the allowable hunter harvest that we had didn't even scratch the population. I mean, heck, I had a grizzly bear tag for two years. And after my hunting season, you know, it's pure lotto draw. And how I was able to get it, I have no idea. But I mean, they are a very cunning species that you have to be at the right place, the right time. And when you only have a few days here and there, I I never got to harvest one. So it was a stance from kind of what I would say the liberal government. A lot of the data that was collected on how people felt was heavily weighted in the lower mainland who have never actually, in fact, come into contact with a grizzly bear besides seeing them on a tour or, you know, from something that National Geographic would post. Um, I'd really like for them to come up and spend some time, you know, in central British Columbia, you know, during calving time when 
grizzlies are running rampant and ranches are trying to save their calves and you know they're legally not allowed to do a whole lot about it they can protect their livestock you know they they're saying that um sows weren't able to harvest or you weren't able to harvest animals um you know because the, the sows were you know taking care of their cubs and their you know orphan cubs that were happening because they weren't marking them as female or male which i mean obviously they have the scientific facts but that's very small in comparison on to what you actually want to harvest as a trophy hunter. You're harvesting a grizzly bear, a male boar is what they're called. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you know, when you're shooting a grizzly, you are making sure it doesn't have cubs at its side. You, <laughs> the last thing you want to do is have that on your conscience. What people don't realize is that bear, it's a dog eat dog world in the bear. As far as they're concerned, a boar will go and kill a sow's cubs so that she will come back into heat. So all these cute and cuddly little Charmin commercials that you see, you know, Papa Bear isn't that nice. So that's where a sow is a force of reckoning because she's going to protect those cubs from any threat because, you know, that her maternal instinct is so strong to, to see those ones through until they're of a mature age of two and sometimes three years old. Mm-hmm. So now you're seeing more problem bears um, showing up that, you know, are there's certain procedures like this year up at camp, we had bears that we had said, you know, are problem bears. Um, one ended up getting, you know, killed because it was attacking and like on its way into personal property and livestock, you know, and there's a way to report it, but it's like, you know, the amount of young boars, I'm sure across the board, if you talk to any CO officer that are getting killed and because you're having to protect personal or property is probably a lot greater than what it used to be, you know, five to 10 years ago. Because those young boars are getting pushed out of their habitat, out of their range, and they're infringing, you know, on habitat for, you know, livestock or coming into communities. So, because they're just not educated. They don't have a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. They don't have, and, it, and it's not that they should be living in fear, but there's no sense of respect. You know, when you go into the mountains, it's, you see a bear in a field or grazing off in a meadow, you know what, you back out, you give it its space. A lot of people don't want to have bad confrontations. And, you know, if you leave camps clean, you know, most of the time you have good bears. And if you don't have attractants, they won't come around. They see you as a smell they don't know and they want nothing to do with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's there's a fine balance in this equilibrium that we now displaced where all of a sudden, you know, you've got boars that are going to be killing, you know, cubs of sows, but then you're also going to have an influx where you've got a heavy sow population that maybe she's having two or three cubs. Um, and then all of a sudden when she kicks them off in a spot where, you know, a male would have been harvested, you know, every couple of years or every year because the population could handle it. Now, all of a sudden there's this influx of a bear population where they're competing for the same food resources that a smaller amount of bears could sustainably live on. So, it's it's a very political standpoint that it was taken away. And the hardest part is, is that there are some guide outfitting areas that it's just like livestock. You don't want to over harvest your population. Mm-hmm. You don't want to over harvest your crop and thinking of it as a crop is not the right terminology, but it's sometimes the home point that a lot of people don't realize is that you are essentially trying to make sure that that population is thriving and you are just skimming off the top so that that way you don't hurt, you know, how you, how you make a living. 
So it, that's the, that's the amazing thing is like people don't realize that though a lot of us, even even the people that aren't as passionate about conservation, you know, I mean, first and foremost, ninety percent of the hunters I know are very passionate about conservation. They, you know, they want to see these animals thrive and live their best lives. Mm-hmm. But even even the ones that aren't, you know, I I don't know personally any hunters that are just just want to want to hunt until something's gone. No. They, you know, they want they want to hunt for the rest of their lives. And what they understand that what that means is is management of that resource. It's you exactly driving, and it, it creates value. well. That's exactly right. And so you know, this was taken away as well. So, for example, summer, um, the Teltan First Nation, um, which is up in the northwestern part of British Columbia, they actually made news and said that they would like a reversal of the of the grizzly bear hunting ban. Because they're seeing fewer and fewer ungulates because they are hard on moose crop. A grizzly, I have watched a grizzly dog a cow and eat the calf as it comes out. You know, like, and there are other reports of old timers that, you know, I've guided with that have seen the exact same thing. And grizzlies are, they're fast. They are an awesome apex predator. They are a killing machine. So, you know, when the First Nations are also saying, look, like this is affecting us too, you know, as well as the farmers, as well as other stakeholders, and we are seeing a decline in everything else. Like, at what point do we have to have such a drop in our ungulate population where all of a sudden we have so many predators? Like, how many people have to have attacks? How many different herds that are, you know, once thriving moose or caribou populations, you know, have to start herding? Or are we even going to catch it at that point where it's too late? Then what? You know, it's. It's interesting. You see the same thing in California with uh, with the mountain lion populations. And just recently they banned any sort of hunting or trapping for bobcats as well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they don't they don't do quite as much damage, but you do see them uh, predating on fawns. Mm-hmm. And you see a lot of the same thing in areas where now the uh, the gray wolves have been released. Mm-hmm. And, and fortunately, in a lot of those areas, the, you know, we have the ability to hunt those wolves and can manage them somewhat, but there's a lot of, a lot of other places where they're, they're still protected and they're starting to spread in those areas. Same thing. You're seeing mm-hmm. these ungulate populations get destroyed. And it's, it. I find, I find it funny that some of the gnarliest animals out there are the ones that people have the most emotional attachment to. Cause it's, I don't think it's even, yeah, there's some perspective of it's like, oh, well, you don't, I mean, trust me, I know a ton of people that eat bear, mountain lion, and wolf and love it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, the public, I, the public, I guess, perception is that, oh, you know, you're just killing them for a trophy. You don't actually eat those animals. But I don't think it's even that so much that. I think we're so conditioned, like, to have this emotional attachment, especially bears, but, but to lions, and to wolves and they're romanticized and you know like you were saying with this with the dang charmin charmin bears and we grew up watching dis entirely too many disney movies and you know we expect to see baloo and like all of this stuff 
I, you know, I'm not sure if I ever told this story on the podcast before, but I was sitting in my office and I uh, was given I, my old office a few years back and I was about to give a presentation to my coworkers. I worked in the music industry and had, we had a lot of vegans on our staff. Um, and one of my pictures popped up as the background on my computer when I went to give this presentation. It was just me and camo carrying my bow. And one of the guys under his breath is like, oh, probably off to kill some, uh, some family of bears. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. And, and we started getting into it. And it's, it's just a bizarre, it's some bizarre impression people have that these are like these cute platonic families of animals. Yeah. That, but no, <laughs> they're not. Well, and that's, we can talk about this all day, but that comes down to the wolf population as well. There's so much controversy. Yes. A wolf is a very interesting and fascinating animal. Do they only attack the sick and the weak? No, they are an opportunist, you know, and, and there is a lot of science to support, you know, in an area that if you go and shoot, you know, a few wolves out of a pack that it can cause fragmentation and, and you're actually more doing more damage than good. And I think that's one thing that because we've all of a sudden started tampering with the natural selection process of, you know, a dog eat dog world or the availability of an animal as a resource or a food source for another animal. It's like, how, at what point do you stop playing God? At what point do we regulate or understand that if you're first going to go in and harvest animals based on an allocation and a number, you know, which is scientifically derived off of, you know, a, a count, if you will, for supporting thesis of the area, then what? You take that you take that study away, you take that harvesting away, predators move in because they once were curved back and your ungulate population suffers suffers. So then you go in and you extirpate or or significantly over harvest your predator species and then your ungulates come back. It's like, why can't we just keep a steady static equilibrium as opposed to all of these passionate plies for kill all the wolves, you know, or no, don't kill the wolves or elk were, were once living here. Why can't the elk live here again? I think that's the part that as a hunter, it's frustrating because somewhere there's disconnect saying that you are not being a good steward of wildlife because you have the power and the will to take a life. The biggest take home I could give to those people is yes, it is an awesome power to be able to harvest an animal. It is a responsibility but it's also a responsibility to make sure that you're doing it ethically and you're helping, you know, preserve the population so that down the road, the next generations can, you know, right now there's, there's a big influx of um, caribou that there's a lot of money and research going into the caribou on the Northeast side of British Columbia. And the population that was once thriving isn't there anymore. What they also are seeing is an influx of um, predation. So, you know, how do you go and, and help the caribou population out without doing any kind of predation control? And at what point do you, <laughs> what point can you operate if you're going to have such lashbacks from people that are sitting at their um, desk down in Vancouver, for example, sipping a latte, thinking that the wolves are really cute and cuddly, when if you were to show that exact same person a YouTube clip of what it looks like when it takes down a cow moose or calf, you know, are they going to think it's cute and cuddly then? So I think that's where having the conversation and just 
kind of showing both sides of the story, I think, is kind of where we need to be, not just as hunters or conservationists or whatever, you know, fluffy, comforting title we want to put on it, but as people that are all enjoying some aspect of what we call home. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's funny you talk about um, those people that want to romanticize the animals, but then you show show them the the reality of the situation and they it it blows me away how they'll find ways to deny what's right in front of them uh the one the one that always i've noticed or that i always think of is i think it was a it was a, a lioness or something and she had a, a literally like a baby monkey in her jaws and it was <laughs> Nothing good was going to happen from this. And then somebody commented on this picture. Oh, it's long been studied that other species, uh, you know, the females from other species will will care for for small. I'm like, there's no way that that is like a mama lion going off to care for this baby monkey. Yeah, that 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 is about to get eaten. Um, But it's just it blows me away. It does not matter sometimes how much you show put it right in front of people's faces they'll still just delude themselves about the whole situation well they're trying to disney it you know like and and disney is great i mean i grew up watching them what kid from the 90s didn't you know the black diamond edition Mm -hmm. but at the same time that's not real life that is a fictitious character drawn up of some person's imagination yep pretty much so say somebody uh say somebody came up to you you were talking with them maybe they're uh you know they know you're a hunter and they're 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 feeling a little pandemic trendy um and and want to get into the outdoors mm-hmm. uh maybe they're talking to you and they say you know I, w- I want to start hunting but there's so much to learn there's so much to figure out and I don't know I've never done it before I don't know anybody that does it where do I start? Uh, well, even like, I don't think I can do it, you know, kind of, yeah. What, what encouragement, what words of advice would you give to that person? I'm a super nerd. So <laughs> like, I like to study. I, and I'll be really honest. I like to study for a test. Um, so if a person was going to get into hunting, I think the biggest thing would be really diving into, okay, well, I want to hunt. Well, where am I? What is feasible? So narrowing it down. Yeah, I want to be a hunter. I'm going to go on a sheep hunt. Well, then you find out you live in Nebraska and they don't have, you know, but a small population of sheep there. Or you live in Kansas. Well, that you're SOL. You're going to have to either move to Alaska or start putting in for tag. So I think there's an element of realism that a person has to kind of dig deep for when they go, okay, uh, why do I want to hunt? Do I want to hunt for provision? Great. Then I'm going to go out and figure out, okay, do I need to have my gun license? Probably going to need to learn how to shoot this thing. And start the baby steps to becoming, you know, this person that you want to be. You want to be a hunter that goes out and and shoots something with a bow for their freezer. Great. Hone that skill. I think that's, you know, the studying for the test, the very meat of learning a hunt or learning what you want to hunt and becoming a hunter is so much of the preparation and the field notes that you have to go through to be able to be successful. You know, you might decide that, um, you know, you live in in eastern Colorado and that, you know, you want to go and hunt antelope, for example. So 
you can't just go out and stand out in a field. I mean, you might, you might get real lucky. <laughs> no one, no one will ever bat an eye at that, but you have to learn through trial and error. So I think if people want to get into hunting, you have to set yourself up mentally that you are going to have some great successes and you are going to have some epic failures, whether it's blown stock, the wrong gear for what you are or who you are and what you're doing or your temperature, your climate, uh, your location. Um, Starting at the very grassroots of why, what am I going to go after? How can I go after it? What are the next steps to make myself successful given my chosen weapon? Um, And learning about shot placement. And I think if they can't sit there and look at themselves in the mirror and go, okay, you know what? I think I can do this, but I might need a little help. If you can't do that with yourself, don't do it. Because that's how you're going to hurt someone or someone else is going to get hurt. But if you want to, but you're not sure about the first step, you'd start reaching out on forums or friends and family. There will be someone that will help you along the way. And I think that's part of hunting that's still a community. Is If you didn't grow up with, you know, your dad or your mom or, or grandparents or family relatives helping you, you know, get the, that foundation of, okay, this is how we load a rifle. You know, we don't put one in the car, you know, we don't load the chamber until we're ready to shoot or just like the things that you just become like second nature to someone that's done something for so long. If you can take a step back and just work through the processes, I think that'll be the first and the biggest step. And it's a loaded statement because there's so (laughs) much that goes into it. But if you can't get past those very fundamental questions of how I'm going to do this, then maybe tag along with someone that wants to go hunting or that is a hunter. You don't necessarily have to jump all in at the moment. You think you might want to go deer hunting? Ask a friend if you can come along and just and see what it's like. That's the biggest thing that I would I would hope that anyone would do is, you know, if you for your own safety and those around you, hunting you're using weapons and you're going to be putting yourself out in situations. My worst fear is to have someone go out and get lost in the wilderness and freeze to death because they thought they were packing for, you know, a South Texas hunt and they're hunting late season in Montana. I mean, (laughs) that's where studying for the test comes in, figuring out all those little details that go into helping you be successful in whatever it is you're going after. Fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on and taking the time to sit down and uh, share a bit with my listeners. If uh, folks wanted to find you online, where can they follow along? Um, Instagram's a pretty good handle at Rachel Attila. Uh, that's, I usually am pretty good about getting back to messages if it's not hunting season. Um, and there's a plethora of people that I can help direct to, uh, Facebook page. It'll just be my first and last name. Um, love to help or, or help direct people to the right people who have answers to questions I might not have answers for. So. Well, I will make sure to link to that on the show notes page. Rachel, thank you again so much for uh, taking the time to hop on with me today. Sam, I appreciate it. All right, y'all, that'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. Big thank you to Rachel for hopping on. Really enjoyed our chat, but that'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this podcast inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. 
Thank you for listening to the Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 